reading tonight is from Acts chapter 15, starting at verse 1, and it's on page 1110 of the Church Bibles. So it's Acts chapter 15, starting at verse 1. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they travelled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles should hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among them, done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things, things known from long ago. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times, and it is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, men who were leaders among the believers. With them they sent the following letter. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. We have heard that some went out from us without your authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friend Barnabas and Paul, men who have, been risked, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. 
You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. So the men were sent off and gathered down and went down to Antioch, where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the believers. After spending some time there, they were sent off by the believers with the blessing of peace to return to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, where they and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preached the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas told Mark and, told Mark and sailed for Cy Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Paul came to Derby and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was Jewish and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they travelled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. This is God's word. Yeah, there's a lot in there. We're not going to cover it all. You can ask me afterwards for the bits we don't get through. Evening. My name's Phil. I'm the Associate Vicar. It's lovely to have you with us, and we've got a, a cracking little passage to get into. When I say a little long um, passage, not sermon, I'm going to pray, and then we'll get going. Father God, we thank you that we are saved by grace. You save us. We do not save ourselves. We are thank you that this message welcomes the people of all nations. And we pray that we would delight to press into that reality for the glory of the Lord Jesus and the salvation of the lost. Amen. Yeah, there's no getting around it. It's an undeniably theological chapter in the Bible. But it is not obscure, and it's not only of interest to those who are doing full-time Christian-y things. It's not like the question, can God create an item so heavy he cannot pick it up. You know, that sort of nonsense philosophizing. It's actually a profoundly practical and very important question that's addressed here. It's the question of how on earth did the early Christians located in one little bit of the world and with no real concept of the globe as we have it today create the most inclusive, diverse global movement in all of history? Uh, look at this map of the, the spread of religions around the world. You can see Islam is the pink, um, then the blue is Hinduism, and the orange is Buddhism, and the yellow is really communism, and the red is Christianity. Almost every other belief system has struggled to move beyond its birthplace, and most of its adherents remain there. And when it does move beyond its birthplace, it becomes ghettoized because people dress like people from that region, act like people from that region. 
So how on earth has Christianity managed to spread right the way across the globe and flourish in really weirdly different cultures? South Sea Islands, Manhattan. The answer is found in Acts 15. And the answer is through refusing to add cultural requirements to the gospel of grace. I hope by the end you'll see how important that is. Refusing to add cultural requirements to the gospel of grace. Now this matters to us here because we live in the most multicultural city in all of history, London in the 21st century. And therefore, if we want to serve and honour the Lord Jesus Christ as a church in 21st century London, we really need to understand this principle so that we can see the gospel flourish in this city amongst the nations. Okay, let's work through the passage. Um, You've got the points on the back of your sheet. Firstly, growing pains in a culture clash. So we saw in Acts 14 last week that Paul and Barnabas faced rioting mobs and they almost stoned Paul to death. But what happens here in Acts 15 is a far greater danger to Christianity than what happened in Acts 14. In Acts 14, one man, a key apostle, but one man almost died. But the teaching that is being encouraged in Acts 15, the false teaching, threatens to destroy the very heart of Christianity. Verse 1, certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. Now, Jesus was Jewish and came to fulfill the promises God made to Abraham. And so up to this point, most of the followers of Jesus are still Jewish. And the center of gravity is still Jerusalem, although the church in Antioch is becoming increasingly important. And so it's perhaps not surprising that a group comes from Jerusalem in the south and treks up to Antioch to say, hey, look, non-Jewish converts, it's wonderful to welcome you, but you've got to get circumcised and obey the law of Moses if you want to be God's people. Paul, though, can see what they're saying poses an existential threat to the Jesus movement, to Christianity. Now, bound up in this call for circumcision in verses 1 are two issues. There is a theological question. How are people saved? What have you got to do to be saved, to be accepted by God? Theological question. And then two a cultural question. How how should we live as God's people? How culturally should we behave as God's people? The theological question is stated pretty boldly in verse 1. You need to be circumcised to be saved. Now why on earth would they say that? Well, circumcision was the ritual that God gave in the Old Testament as the kind of entry to his people. You want to join the people of God, you want to enter the kingdom of God, get circumcised. And I guess they're arguing something like, hey, look, trust in Jesus. It deals with your sins. You get forgiven. So the slate is wiped clean. But to positively enter into into the people of God, well, you've got to get circumcised and obey the law of Moses. It's always been like that. Understandable, perhaps, but it is not the gospel. It is not Christianity. It's not the message Jesus alone is all you need. It's the message Jesus plus. 
It denies that Jesus' death is enough to save you. And instead, it says, if you want to be saved, you have to become culturally Jewish as well. You've got to obey the law of Moses. Uh, You've got to, verse 5, obey his law, which will mean you've got to eat only kosher foods. You've got to observe Jewish um, holidays and religious festivals. You've got to wear Jewish cultural clothing. In other words, they're saying you can't be saved unless you do some stuff. And they're saying the gospel comes with a culture attached to it. You see, there, there is a cultural aspect to this. They're saying you've got to be part, you've got to become culturally Jewish to be genuinely one of God's people. The gospel comes with a culture attached. So the theological and a cultural, but actually the theological and the cultural are mixed. They're tightly linked. Because in the Old Testament, the, the cultural laws have got a theological purpose. Have you ever wondered why it says no eating bacon in the Old Testament? I'm going to explain it. So, The Old Testament laws that seem cultural, they've got a theological purpose. You mustn't wear clothes of mixed fibers. Anybody here wearing cotton poly? Uh, You'd be in trouble. You'd be thrown out of the synagogue. Why do they have that weird law? So that the people would understand you don't mix the worship of the one true God with the worship of other gods like everybody else around them did. It was a cultural law to reinforce a theological truth. You mustn't enter the temple if you've had contact with a dead body or you've got an infectious skin disease. I'm not touching myself because I have right now, just to be clear. Um, But if you have an infectious skin disease, you can't go to the temple. Why? To help the people understand that uh, our sin makes us unclean. It's like we've got a, a disease on us. And so we can't come into the presence of the holy God. And, you know, just normal life, it's almost impossible to to avoid becoming unclean, lots, to help people understand that sin just is everywhere and infects all of us. Why why the no eating pork or no marrying people from other tribes? So that they would, even in the way they eat, be separate. So that they wouldn't just end up getting uh, assimilated and mixed and the true message of salvation would be lost as it gets watered down amongst the nations. So the question being discussed at the Jerusalem Council, here's the question. Is the message of Jesus a message which welcomes the people of all cultures, or is it a message which requires you to become Jewish? Now, there is something biblically unique going on at this moment when the barrier between Jew and Gentile that's been up there since Abraham has been broken down. But the truth is, whenever the church grows, you get problems like Acts 15. It's happened throughout history. Um, A few years back, um, just after I graduated, I spent a bit of time working for a church in Argentina. And it was an area where most of the churches had been founded by Baptist missionaries from America. Now, they'd come from a, a culture where you didn't dance because dancing was associated with dance hall culture. And that was really sinful and really pretty depraved. And so the Baptists just had a rule, you don't dance. But then they went to Argentina and to Latin America and they imposed this rule of don't dance on the, on the new converts there, which was madness. And the result was some absolutely mad church services because you try telling Latin Americans you cannot dance. You know, it's, it just, it's like saying you cannot breathe uh, when they're happy. And so because they couldn't dance anywhere else, they just 
worshipped enthusiastically. And it was like going through Barry's boot camp every Sunday when you went to church. At the end of it, you're just, <gasps> I can barely stand up. I've never been so fit in my life. It was, but it was just a... And it's, you see, what they do is any time we come up with cultural things which we say you've got to do, it's what makes sense in our culture. We always require things that make sense in our culture. But as soon as we say everybody's got to do that, we put up a barrier to people from different cultures coming to Christ. And that's what's happening here. There, there is a specific thing going on and a particular reason in salvation history, but this thing happens always. That we think this makes sense in our culture as Christians to do things this way, and so everybody should do it. And it stops the, the gospel being accessible to other cultures. Now, this problem of a culture clash, it's actually a good problem. It shows the gospel is growing and going out to different places. But it is a dangerous problem because it, it's corrupting the, the central message of Christianity. So Paul and Barnabas go down to Jerusalem, not because they haven't got authority, but because they want to make sure that all the apostles stand together and together defeat this dangerous error. Secondly, no compromise on the gospel of Jesus' grace. This is the, really the heart of the passage. So verse 6, the apostles and elders met to consider this question, and after much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Now, Peter is the, the leader of the Jerusalem church, and he speaks, and you'll notice, you may have noticed as Emily read it, that he very much focuses on what God is doing, what God does. Verse 7, brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles should hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. See, it's what God does. Hey, look, <laughs> what we like, what's comfortable for us, what seems sensible to us, that doesn't matter. God makes the decisions around here. And you can summarize his argument with three statements. Don't discriminate when God accepts. Don't require what God doesn't. And don't put God to the test. Don't discriminate when God accepts. He says, look, God has shown he accepts the Gentiles. He's poured his Holy Spirit into their hearts to purify them. So how can you now say, well, you're not really pure unless you've kept some rituals? Why on earth would you require people to perform external ceremonies to make them ritually pure when they are really pure internally, spiritually, truly, because God has poured his Spirit into their hearts? Secondly, don't require what God doesn't. I mean, Peter looks around and says, look, every single one of you in this room has been accepted by God because of what Jesus has done, not because you've managed to keep the law. So why on earth are you requiring the Gentiles to do something you couldn't do? He describes the law as a yoke, a heavy burden on the neck. It's not all that the law was, but one function of God's law was to show how impossible it is for sinful humans like us to manage to obey God perfectly and therefore deserve his acceptance. 
No sinful human can manage it. So he says, look, why on earth would you impose a burden on the Gentiles that none of us were able to bear and that God has lifted off us? And so he warns them, don't put God to the test. Don't put God to the test, verse 10. Now that's not a phrase of uh, testing God's will to try and find out what God's will is. It's, it's seeing what happens if you disobey. It's putting to the test in the way a child does when you say, there will be no cake for dessert if you touch it. And the child. Don't do that with God. Don't disobey God. God has made it clear the law has been fulfilled in Jesus. Why would you require other people to do it? And Peter sets out the central message of Christianity, the gospel in verse 11. Here it is. The heart of a complex theological chapter this shines out like sunshine in the clouds. We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved. The greatest message in history. Full stop. How can I say that? Well, think about what it means. It means God has done everything, everything through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ to give us forgiveness and eternal life. So you are free from your past, you are free from your present, and you are free from your future. We're free from the guilt and shame we carry about our past, the wrong things we've done, the, and the shame that we can bear for them. Jesus took it all upon himself on the cross and instead declares us right with God, clean and acceptable, and welcomes us as God's children. Our future, the, the fear and anxiety that we feel about things in this life and ultimately about death and the judgment to come. Well, that too's taken. Because Jesus rose from the dead, we know how the story ends. We know what will happen on judgment day because we are joined with Christ. By faith, we are in Christ. So if we are in him, then we too will join him and be accepted into heaven on judgment day. We know with certainty our future is God's paradise kingdom. Our present too, we are set free. You know, insecurity and inadequacy that we all feel to a greater and lesser extent. It's that constant need, I've got to prove myself. You know, you, we're told from childhood, you are free to be what you want, to do what you want. Go out and pursue your dreams. And the danger is that adulthood can then be just uh, a long death of little disappointments as I fail to walk on the moon, become prime minister, play for England, make partner at the firm, have a f the family I wanted, all those things. And what that means is that too many of us go through life crushed by the insecurity that comes with doubting, I've done enough to be worthy in the eyes of, uh, of others or of myself. We go through wondering, Am I worthy of being considered a success? Am I worthy of being loved? And into that darkness shines the light of God's grace. God declares you worthy and right, right now. Not because of your achievements, but because Jesus gives us his achievements. You can be assured that through Jesus, God looks on you and says, you are worthy. And God looks on you and says, you are loved. 
and nothing can change it. And to add anything to that message is to ruin it. The moment you say, Jesus saves plus you've got to, the moment you add something I have to do, you've added something I can screw up, something I can fail at. And then the security and the freedom and the joy of the gospel is replaced by anxiety and fear. And so Peter declares, we are saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't you dare add anything to that. And the final word in the debate, do you notice who it belongs to? James stands up and it's God's word. Yeah, yeah, let's just check that this fits with what God has always said. Now, as he turns back to the written word of God, it may be that uh, he quotes lots of passages and Luke just selects one of them. There's lots of places he could have turned, but he turns to the prophet Amos, who declares, after this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tents. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name. He says, Look, the time would come when God would restore the kingdom and dynasty of David. And when that happens through David's descendant, Jesus, at that point, people from all over the world would come to God. And he says, the Gentiles, they bear my name. They don't have to become Jewish first. They bear my name. And so Paul and Barnabas traveled to Jerusalem to fight for the truth of the gospel. The truth that you don't have to change culture to be acceptable to God. You don't have to achieve something to be acceptable by God. You don't have to maintain a moral standard to enter God's people. Jesus has done it all. Now it's interesting. Paul is inflexible and dogmatic about this and will fight to the death over it. But that doesn't mean he's exclusive and narrow. In fact, it's because he's inflexible and dogmatic about salvation by grace that Christianity is able to be inclusive, wide open to the people of every tribe and nation and tongue because it's not tied to any one culture. Okay, thirdly, gracious compromise on issues of culture. Now, what comes next seems uh, really rather odd given what we've just said. Verse 19, so James says, in my judgment, therefore, we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. No compromise on requiring any obedience to the law of Moses for people to be saved. So you Gentiles are better obey some bits of the law of Moses. And what? Verse 21 explains the rationale. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. How does that explain anything? Well, all four of the issues that he raises, they relate to idolatry. If you've been studying 1 Corinthians, we've seen this um, as we've uh, gone through in our midweek groups. And they're all things, all things to do with uh, idol worship that the Gentiles are moving away from that would have scandalized Jewish Christians and made it very hard for the church to be unified. Now, sexual immorality is the odd one out in one sense because the other things aren't things that are actually sinful. They're just things that are uh, kind of to do with how you ate meat um, 
but that had sort of idolatrous connotations and it's complicated for the Christians working out what's right and what's wrong. Again, we've seen that in 1 Corinthians. But the sexual immorality is straight up sinful. Now there are debates over this, but I think the point is that the pagan worship, the idolatry in most of the, the pagan cities, it involved sex with shrine prostitutes and all sorts of dodgy goings on. And so it's included in this list of stuff as they turn away from worshipping idols. They say, look, just be very careful of all the stuff from your old life, which culturally you know is really offensive to Jews. And one of the, the biggest gaps between pagan culture and Jewish culture would have been sexual morality. So, look, okay, what is going on? You can paraphrase it as this. You can paraphrase the letter that they write as this. Look, Given half your congregation is Jewish, please do not walk into church munching on a bacon sandwich, which has got a wrapper that reads Zeus's sacrificial meat shop, okay? Just don't do it, because it's going to make it really hard for the, the other Jewish people in church who want to bring their family and friends to hear about Jesus, but they can hardly do that while you're sat there stinking of bacon and with wrappers talking about sacrificial meat, He's not requiring them to do something to be saved. He's saying, to be kind, would you, would you just be careful? Now, the first few verses of chapter 16 contain an even bigger surprise. Paul required Timothy to get circumcised. Uh, right at the end of the passage. What? Is he a hypocrite? Has he changed his mind? No, it's, it's the same dynamic at play. No one's saying, Timothy, you've got to be circumcised to be saved. Paul's saying, look, Timothy, you need to get circumcised because we're trying to share the gospel with lots of Jewish people and they know you haven't been circumcised. You'll never be able to go into their house to read the Bible with them if, if you've not been circumcised. So for the sake of that, will you do it? And Timothy does. And the last verse, chapter 16, verse 5, contains the phrase that Luke uses repeatedly through Acts to show they've done what's right and all is now well. They've done what's right and all is now well and the church is flourishing. 16.5, so the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. Okay, come up for air. Two things for us. What do we actually do in the light of this? Well, firstly, it's good to be flexible on secondary stuff, but don't compromise on the gospel. Don't compromise on the gospel. Our culture divides the world into people of faith and secular people. Have you noticed that? That's one of the big distinctions now. There's people of faith and the secular people. We're told again and again, in one sense, it doesn't matter quite so much what you believe as that you are a religious person or a secular person. It is absolute rubbish. What you believe matters intensely. The only message which saves and which enables Christianity to welcome the people of the world is the message of salvation by grace through Jesus. I'll put this really bluntly. The message you get right with the God of the Bible by obeying what Jesus commands and following his example of love is as useless for saving you as the message there is no God so just get on with your life. Those two have more in common with each other than the first one does with Jesus saves. Only the message of grace, the message of trusting that Jesus has done everything to save you, 
Only that message can make you right with God, for only Jesus has died to pay for your sins. So we cannot, we must not compromise on the gospel. We must stand up to error and be prepared to fight, not physically fight, but to fight the arguments, to warn against error and contend for the truth. Now, today, the main way this gospel of grace is being challenged and undermined is not people telling us you've got to get circumcised and stop eating bacon. It's people saying you don't need grace at all. That some things the Bible desires, uh, some of the desires the Bible defines as sinful just aren't sinful at all. So you don't need grace. You don't need forgiveness. But however the gospel of grace is being attacked, we must stand firm. For only the gospel of grace can save. So don't compromise on the gospel. Be flexible on other stuff, but don't compromise on the gospel. And then lastly, it's okay to have a culture, but don't build cultural barriers. See, it is actually only by being theologically exclusive and uncompromising on the central gospel that we can be inclusive and welcoming of all people. See, the the Bible tells us what the content of church services should be. Bible reading, sermon, prayers, songs, the Lord's Supper. But it doesn't squeeze us into one particular cultural mold. So churches can have exactly the same beliefs and look wildly different. So the message of Acts 15 is not have no culture so everyone feels at home. That's impossible. As soon as we use the English language, we're excluding a whole bunch of people who don't speak it. As soon as we choose this style of music, I, haven't, how, how, I have no idea, I'll get in trouble, whatever I describe it as, that style of wonderful music. As soon as we do that, we exclude all the people who say, I just, I find the only way I really feel worshipful is Gregorian chant or gospel or grunge. As soon as you make one choice, you've excluded people. There are people like that. You know, I can't dress in a way which will please traditionalists, formal people, and uh, people who are really casual and, and hate formality. You can't do both. So don't be embarrassed about the culture we have as a church. We're allowed to have our culture. It's okay. It's never going to appeal to anybody. It's fine. That's okay. The question to ask from Acts 15 is, do we erect unnecessary barriers to people from different cultures? Do we make reasonable efforts to welcome the people of our city into our church? It's the question raised by Anna's interview. Look, I'm not saying if an Italian person joins your small group, you must now do everything in Italian. I mean, short of eating pizza and gesticulating a lot, that's as far as I can go. I can't. I just can't do anymore. But seriously, it's worth asking, each of us asking, do I ever include people who are from other cultures in my friendship circle? You're allowed to have your natural friends. Part of friendship is just natural, it just happens. But do I ever welcome people in who are different from me? It's worth asking, who gets invited Not who do I speak to in church, but who gets invited to dinner in my house or out for a coffee? When there's a bank holiday trip to the beach, who do I invite and who do I just not even consider inviting? 
Our internationals or people from not from the majority culture left to form their own community? I think that is a danger sometimes for us. Or do we delight to have the nations and enjoy welcoming? I mean, let me give uh, one example. I'll probably get shot for it. But um, there we go. One really. Look, lots of people from East Asian heritage go to Chinatown for food after church. And that is great. And there is nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with different groups liking different things and enjoying the affinity that comes from having some similar background. But it would be a shame if they went there together because they never get invited to other stuff by people who are from British-born culture. So it's fine and good that we have different groups in church. It's part of the richness of it. We have natural groups. But let's make sure that the gospel is driving us outwards to welcome others inwards. The gospel of grace welcomes people from every culture, even natural Londoners. And we should seek to do the same. And we should also show a lot of grace and cut each other some slack because there's always mess when you're working this stuff out. The only comfortable church is a dead room. Uh, as soon as there's growth, there's awkwardness. And so let's be kind to each other. Because one day, one day we'll get it right. One day we'll join with people from every nation and culture and celebrate the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ in heaven. The place we are, we are heading is Revelation 7, 9 to 11. It should appear on the screen. And you'll notice it doesn't say, I joined a faceless group where everybody looked the same, sounded the same, dressed the same. That's not what's going to happen. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude, no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's where we're heading. And you know what? We are so blessed. We are so, so blessed because we live in a city and at a time when we get more of a flavor of that than many people. So let's enjoy the privilege and press into it together. And we're going to express our unity in that gospel of grace as we share the Lord's Supper together. As we come before him, come to his table, there is nothing that's uh, more unifying in one sense than to eat together. It's a real declaration of comfort with one another. And here is a meal that we eat all together as a whole people of God.